Well, hello there. Welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 101. Rich Kimball, Kerry Haskell with you from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where we do our daily show downtown Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Zone Radio stations of Maine and all around the world with streaming audio at our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hope things are going well for you in this uh, brave new world of quarantining. Rolling into, uh, well, for some of us, the second month of this whole operation. Easy for Carrie and I, we just never leave the studio here. And so <laughs> occasional visits to family. Yeah, you spend a lot of time down in the cellar. Yes, yeah. Typical. Good down there. <laughs> right. Actually, that's pretty much what it was like before all this hit, too. Mm-hmm. Right? Keep us out of harm's way down there. And we've got a couple of great conversations. I mean, we we think every week we have great conversations. And I don't know, maybe it's now that we've got 100 shows under our belt. We're, we're getting better at this as we go along. Two terrific conversations for you this week in the second half of the podcast. Boston College professor, historian, and author Heather Cox Richardson talks about her tremendous new book, How the South Won the Civil War. And we'll learn that, uh, well, themes in history tend to come back around. Fascinating book that we'll talk about with Heather. In the first half, a great conversation with friend of our show, actress Perry Gilpin, who for 11 seasons played Roz Doyle on the NBC comedy Frasier. Much of the cast reunited recently online for Stars in the House uh, fundraiser for the Actors Fund. We had a chance not only to talk with Perry about that, but uh, some great episodes of the show, what it was like working on Frasier, but we also uh, got a visit during our conversation from Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter, who did a wonderful oral uh, oral history on Frasier a few years ago, and is coming out with a book in May, An Oral History of Modern Families. Some similarities between the two shows, including a, well, a memorable guest appearance by Perry Gilpin on Modern Family. Hear all of it right now, our conversation with Perry Gilpin. Perry, thanks for joining us again. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Loved having you on last time. Love following you on Twitter. You don't hold anything back, and we like that a lot. Oh, good. I'm glad you like that. I don't, I don't do I? I? I should temper it a little bit, maybe. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. Hey, also, uh, later on in our conversation, our friend Mark Freeman from The Hollywood Reporter will be joining us to talk uh, a little modern family because we'll We'll discuss a connection between the shows a bit later, but I wanted to say how much I enjoyed last week when all of you got together online for Stars in the House, a little uh, online Frasier reunion, and it's clear that you you still have a tremendous bond between everybody from that show. Oh, it, you know, I knew we did, and then when I, you know, I, I everyone kept saying that, right? You know what you're saying. Everyone kept people wrote that and said that, and. So I just kept going back and looking and saying, what, you know, like, what are they seeing? And then I could see it. It's just like we were just thrilled to see each other. We just really were. And it was you know, really. I miss those people so much. And they're so dependable. You know, they're just solid. Everybody. And, you know, everybody just, I guess we have, you know, we just know each other so well. We almost can guess what kind of thing is going to come out of somebody else's mouth you know what their take on things and we're we're still excited to hear it i guess you know it's really fun 
I think often the, the mark of a great show to me, one of the marks of a great show is when you have an ensemble where everyone is allowed to have their moments. And, and that starts with having a, a lead like a Kelsey Grammer, who appears to be the kind of person, as all the greats have been, who was not unhappy to let other people get the laugh. No, that's I, that is the secret I think of the show from the very beginning was that he was um, you know he is just as you know he'll he'll set you up you know as you know and he'll 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 make your setup for him even funnier you know he's just very generous in that way he te- he misses no opportunity to make it funny or make it poignant or make it better. You know, and and he's happy to share the load, and you know, he'll, you know, he uh, he wants you to. I mean, sometimes it's 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 like, uh, you know, he wants you to be up to his level. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's and also so he's, he prompts you, he he challenges you, and makes you better. You know. It's also clear, too, that everybody in the cast was very welcoming to those guest actors, that they become a, a part of the family, became a part of the family as soon as they showed up for a table read. Oh, yeah, they were very much so. And um, a lot of people like I had met Harriet in, in a funny way the night that I left New York and decided to go to, you know, move to Los Angeles. I was very torn but I just couldn't, you know, this is so many years ago, but I didn't want to leave New York. I just felt like I had to, to go try to get work. You know, there just was, it was, there just wasn't much work in New York for someone as inexperienced as I was. So I, um, a friend of mine was doing a man and Superman with Harriet and David Burney at the roundabout. And I went to see it and I went and I said, you know, Michael knew I was coming. And so Michael introduced me to Harriet that night. And she was sort of saying, why, you know, why are you going to New York? You know, the actor conversation, you know, and we just talked to us. She says, well, you should do very well there, you know, <laughs> in, in L.A. And, and it was just I uh, never forgot it because she was very supportive, you know. And so then years later, when we got to work together, I felt like she was an old friend. And and, and you know, Kelsey and Harriet had gone to Juilliard together. And so they had a long They'd known each other for a long, long time. David knew Harry. You know, they all, everyone, Tom McGowan is married to one of my closest friends from Dallas from when we were in theater together at Dallas Theater Center. We were, we, 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 we were in class together for 10 years. And, um, and she's from Dallas and he's from New Jersey. So I don't even know, I still can't figure out how that happened. <laughs> you know, so there were just so many connections. Patrick is good friends with a bunch of people I know. And then of course, Edward, one of the things that happened, do you mind if I just go on and on? I'm sorry. No, please do. That's why you're here. People can hear me any day. <laughs> okay. I had a cup of tea. Um, th- there was a show that came through at the Geffen and it was called Jeffrey. I don't know if you know that show, but it was hilarious. And I think Harriet was in that. And, but Edward was in that for sure. And so Edward Hibbert. And so, it, and there were several people from that play that wound up in, in the regular cast of Frasier. And we all went to see it together. And it was a big hit in LA. And I think it was a hit before that in New York. So, Anyway, it's a very funny play, and all those actors came through at one point, if not once, you know, more than once. And so that's how we got to know Edward. And 
I was surprised he wasn't there. There must have been some kind of conflict because he was, you know, we just, we waited for, we were so excited. We get the script the night, we, we taped on Tuesday night. And then usually we have a script in our dressing room by the time we left from shooting that night. You know, so you'd go home and read it and then you'd come back in the next day around noon and do a table read. And so that night, you know, we'd always go, hey, Edward's coming tomorrow. Harriet's coming tomorrow. Tom's coming tomorrow. Like, we'd be so excited about who's coming the next day. Well, and I have to think, too, that, that that stage experience, that theater sensibility that so many of you had, had a tremendous influence on the way everyone played their characters. I think it was a, I think you're right. I think it was a huge influence because it was, uh, because, you know, you know, it was, filmed in front of a live audience so there was that element and you when you're in you know when you're on a show like modern family for instance that's a single camera so they they could go a long time without seeing each other like the different families Mm. might go you know they may see each other at the table read and then they might not see each other till the next table read if their scenes didn't overlap you know so like you know, Julie Bowen might not see Jesse for the rest of the week because they didn't have any scenes together, you know. But in our situation, when you're doing a, a, a four-camera, a multi-camera, we were together all day when we were rehearsing, and, like, we, we had a dressing room upstairs from the stage. So we'd all be up there talking, which is so much what that was like the other day, that that stars in the house. It was just like that, everyone telling stories. Well, yeah, and, and, you, and, you, and Perry, you guys talked a lot on the stars in the house about the green room and how important that was. Can you explain to people what that meant and what went on there? Yeah, well, that we moved on to stage 25 after Cheers left. So Cheers shot their last episode and then two weeks they, you know, took that set to the Smithsonian or wherever it went, and then, and then two weeks later, the Fraser set was built and put there. So that eleven-year-old show ended, and a new show came in, but it was all the same crew and all the same everything. But David and Jane and me and John, we were the only new people there. So that was really interesting. But the green room, so this was on a soundstage that just happened to have a set of stairs that went upstairs, and they say, and I think this is. Not, not hearsay, I think it's true, but the upstairs part of that soundstage was Ricky and uh, Desi and Lucy's apartment. Oh, wow. And I think they shot on 25 as well. So they, when they were at the studio, they would live there. So our conference room where we'd have our table read and all the rooms upstairs from that, you know, were their apartment. So when you go up, the, there were several ways to get upstairs, but if you go upstairs to our dressing rooms, you have this big, the big makeup and costume shop on your right, and then you walk down the hall, and, and there's there was a hallway with tiny little dressing rooms, and then at the end of the hallway was a common room that I it, and and like I had George Wentz's old dressing room, <laughs> and you know everybody had you know we just they had just left you know so they had used it that way too. And then we just came in, and John just parked himself. There was a chair that faced down the hallway, and that was John's chair. So he was always there, and then there were a couple of couches, another chair. So you're, there's pictures of the cast in the green room, and as the seasons went by, our, our uh, line producer, Maggie, would have these little shots of the show uh, 
framed, and they, they covered all the walls up there by the end of the 11th year. There was every inch of those walls was covered in those little picture framed, you know, stills. So, but the, 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 the good part of the green room was that it's just where we, we congregated. And so, like, if, if Jane and David had a scene together and they were downstairs, me and John would be in there. Kelsey was usually on the set or he had... He, he was in the green room with us, but less because he was more, you know, producing the show and in the, the star of the show. But, you know, you'd be up there with whoever wasn't on stage waiting to get called down to do your scene, unless you wanted to go down and watch for some reason. But then also that's where the guests would come. And so they'd be there and, you know, all of a sudden they realized, oh, there's a room I can go and sit down and, you know, I don't have to go be by myself I can hang out you know and so we got we'd get to know people and we we all felt as you would in most theater that the better the more comfortable our guests were the better they would do and the better the show would be and the better we would all do and it would just only be good and plus it would be fun so everyone was very polite and there were we just had the best time and everybody this is bad Everybody smoked, and people would come and go, you can smoke here? And we're like, yeah, you can. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Perry Gilpin here on Downtown, and also another guest joining us, and we're happy to welcome him back to the program, our friend Mark Freeman from The Hollywood Reporter, who did a wonderful oral history of Frasier not too many years ago and is about to release a brand-new book on the history of modern family. Mark, welcome back. Well, hello, and hi, Perry. Hi, Mark. What a fun meeting we've got with everybody here. And, and, and Mark, we wanted to talk and have you on to discuss uh, the connections, because there are a number of connections between Modern Family and Frasier. That is correct. Um, the two biggest being uh, probably Christopher Lloyd, who's one of the co-creators, and uh, Jeff Greenberg, who was casting director. And, and Steve Lepkamp. Perry knows both of those intimate, both of them intimately. Yeah, talk and can you talk about Chris Lloyd and, and Steve Levitan and Jeff Greenberg, uh, Perry, and uh, what they meant to, uh, to you and, and to the cast of both shows? Yes. Well, I mean, Chris Lloyd introduced me to my husband and, and his wife Arlene. They introduced me to my husband, so you know, I'm all uh, I'm very grateful to them. And Steve Levitan was, I've worked on Wings with Steve and Chris. So I, I've known them for many, many years. And my husband is very close with Steve Levitan as well. And, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're not only, they're not only coworkers, but they're really dear friends and incredibly talented ones. So that, that they mean a lot. And then Jeff is, uh, Jeff is my champion. He, 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 helped me get many, many jobs and, and, and supported, you know, liked my work and brought me in and helped me make things work. And is that way for, for a lot of actors. But I will always love Jeff because I wouldn't have been on Fraser without him. And that was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And Mark, we were talking with Perry earlier about the bond between the cast members on Frasier, and I have to think the same thing exists uh, as you've gotten to know the people involved with Modern Family. Yeah, I'm, my experience has been with these oral history articles and definitely with this book that shows that have a history 
meaning probably at least five, six years of people spending that much amount of time, or as someone from the Modern Family book said, you spend more time with cast and crew than you do your own family, that you you go through a lot, the natural aspects and cycles of life, of uh, birth, death, marriage, um, divorce, uh, movement, changing, and then on top of that, you just are doing something that is creating art, and you're doing it together, and you're contributing, and everyone has a voice. And I think in the end, what you get is, as somebody from the crew had told me, this um, true family. So it's a modern family family in which sometimes you get mad at each other, but you love each other at the end of the day, and you're all working towards the same goal. And so not every family, families aren't perfectly neat. And uh, in that sense, modern family isn't. But but at the same time, being a family, they all love each other and loved working together for 11 plus years. And another crossover is that, Perry, you had a, a very memorable guest appearance. Can you talk about your character, Jeannie, when you appeared on Modern Family? Yes, I got a call. I got a call one day. I think I was in a spin class and I came out and I and I got this call from Jeff going, they want you to come do an episode and and then for some reason I didn't know what it was. I just I just called I just texted him or something. I was going, Yes, yes, yes. And he goes, Well wait, do you want to know what it is? And I go, No, I don't. And he goes, It's a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh perfect, perfect, perfect. So I read it and I loved it and I the the I, I love Ty. I love Julie. I love the girls and um Ariel and Sarah, I adore them, and it has been really fun to watch them grow up and on film. And But I was so excited to work with Fred Willard because I've never gotten to work with him before, and he used to come by the, the Fraser set to say hi to John because they were friends, and he was just kind of, he's just one of those people that you run into, and, you know, he's just part of the fabric of Los Angeles. So... He, um, so I was just so excited. So I, you know, I went and did it, and not only was it the, the guy directing it with Steve Levitan, but the guy that was like just sort of the technical director of it is this guy named Jim Hens, who I went to University of Texas with. I had known him forever, had never seen him since, and it was so bizarre. I didn't even know he was out here. So we had a ball that day. It was really, really great. So I came back and I was I walked into my school my kids elementary school and the couple that started that school are Jane Lee's in-laws her husband's parents started the school like 40 years ago so I've known Joel the head of the school since they got married so forever you know so I, I walk in and Joel goes oh Perry I caught you on Modern Family last night you know <laughs> But there was a guy, one of the teachers at that school, her husband, Phil, is the artistic, the art director for, um, you know, Bob's Burgers, which is every bit as risque as that was. <laughs> and I go, Phil draws, you know, Phil draws Bob's Burgers. You know, I tried to bust him just to take the. But then the thing was is that I, I wasn't sure if my kids would actually see it. But then one of the kids that they went to school with was such a huge Modern Family fan. Um, little Amanda, MTS, she loved it so much 
that she announced to the class what I had, what I was, and what I did, and what I said. So they got home and they were like, "Mom, what did you? What? What did you?" I had to explain the whole thing to my children because of that. So, and that's a hard thing to explain to a ten-year-old. <laughs> I, I would think so. And, and so, Mark, I understand that. Uh, I understand Perry does make an appearance in your Modern Family book that's coming up soon. She does. There's a chapter, there's a gazillion chapters, but there's a chapter on guest stars and recurring characters um, that people mentioned and held dear and wanted to hear from. So Perry's there, uh, Elizabeth Banks, Josh Gad, Matthew Broderick, Benjamin Bratt, uh, Peyton Manning. Um, there's also a Barbara Streisand story, but I did not uh, reach out to Barbara because she's actually not in the episode it ends up being her voice. She recorded a 20-second bit on her iPhone because they figured they would never be able to get her there in person. Um, but one of the writers, um, who's a writer from Frasier, incidentally, Jeffrey Richmond, uh, is very good friends with her and used to write uh, her material for her stage performances. That's amazing. Uh, we're talking with Mark Freeman, Perry Gilpin here on Downtown. And uh, Perry, I think it was Mark that, that actually asked you about this in his wonderful oral history of the show. But you you based the character of Roz on a very close personal friend. <laughs> well, yes, I did. I did. And I didn't. My, the writers didn't know her. But as I as they started writing, you know, it was, it's interesting when you start to see things, as Mark was saying, it's very intimate. The the whole, you start, they're writing for you, you know, and you're like, did you make this up? Or did you, did you talk to someone in my family? I mean, there was one time when they had Bobby Sherman come on, you know, and Bobby <laughs> Sherman was, I wrote a letter to him when I was nine years old asking him to marry me and I meant it with all my heart. I was in love with Bobby Sherman and they wrote that about Roz and there was no way for them to know that. There's no way for them to know that unless they, unless somebody told them, but I could not get that out of them. But so Bobby Sherman came to the show and, and, and I told, I said, I, I couldn't like stop fangirling because I, it was so real, you know, but then there are other things that are not real you know, at all and have nothing to do with you. And, and, uh, there, I was raised in a very, um, Baptist religious, uh, you know, restricted, <laughs> oppressed, you know, situation in Dallas. So there were a lot of things about Roz's freedom that weren't necessarily all me. And, but I had a really good friend who it was to a T. And so I'd go, okay, this is her. I know exactly what this is. But, and I've seen it in action. And I'm always like, I always love it and it cracks me up. And it's what I, you know, it's one of my favorite things about her, her freedom. And, uh, and it's just like an East Coast woman. I'm sorry. I hope that's <laughs> It's not a Southern woman, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> All right, Perry, everybody wants to know, and, and maybe there is no answer yet, what is the status of a possible reboot of the show? The, it's the same as it's always been. I mean, there's a lot of talk about it, and there's a lot of movement right now. But I think that the main, the, the main issue for everyone is 
that it be, uh, you know, as good or better as the original. Uh, I don't know if we can do better, but I mean, that, that was the goal would be to aim for that because no one wants it not to be, you know? So I think that's what keeps it in limbo a little bit, which is fine with everybody. And I'm sure it's even fine with the audience, you know? But um, but I, I, I hope we do it. Some of the things I've heard sound wonderful if it, if it can come to pass. But I think we just all have the same, the very same fears. And uh, Marcus, for your wonderful book, I know it's going to be wonderful because everything you write is terrific. Your book on Modern Family is due out uh, in mid-May. You'll be back on to talk with us about it, but what's the official publication date? Uh, May 19th. Well, we'll look forward to that, and we'll have you back on to talk about it as we get closer to that. Mark, thanks so much for uh, checking in with us here during our conversation with Perry, and we'll see you again in a few weeks' time. That sounds great. Great being here, and bye, Perry. Bye, Mark. Bye. And thank you for coming. And Perry, thanks to you, as always, for being on with us. And thanks for the suggestion of having Mark on, too. Uh, that was great. It's awesome to talk with you again. Love what you're doing on Twitter. We look forward to much more from you. And uh, thanks again for making time for us. Stay safe. Thank you, Rich. You, too. Perry Gilpin, uh, joined there on the conversation by Mark Freeman of The Hollywood Reporter. That was That was just fun stuff right there, having them both on with us. Yeah, and we could have kept going for a lot longer uh, yeah. if we hadn't been up against the top of the hour. Uh, it, it, just a great conversation and uh, always a joy to have her on. Absolutely. And another one coming up after this word from Cross Insurance is we talk with author, historian, college professor Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, How the South Won the Civil War. Next on Downtown the Podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. downtown the podcast our next guest is a professor at boston college the author of a number of books including a brand new one entitled how the south won the civil war a fascinating look at history of uh, the south the north the west especially and the changing face of political parties in america here's our conversation with heather cox richardson this book is absolutely wonderful and frightening all at the same time. And it's, it's proof that in history, what goes around comes around. Uh, well, we always like to say that, um, that history doesn't exactly repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And I think you can see that in the present for sure, how much, it, it, how much the, the kind of patterns we're living with today look a lot like ones we've lived through in the past. And, and your book chronicles uh, what you're calling the second rise of American oligarchy. Yes, that's right. So one of the things, the ways I got into this book was it occurred to me 
you know, I live in the 19th century, and I know those guys really, really well. And it struck me as I was reading the news how much today's politicians and today's um, some of today's big thinkers sound like the the elite slaveholders of the 1850s are using the exact same language. Mm. And that really struck me, and I wanted to see why and, and how that happened. And there was also this really interesting period in the 1890s when the same sort of language happened, but the robber barons, as they were known at the time, didn't take over American society. So what made that different? And, you know, it, that book, this book was a really long time doing the thought work as well as the research because it's a big sweeping story and an awful lot goes on. And I, I was stunned at the notion that 150 years ago, there were a lot of people in this country who argued, see if this sounds familiar, that taxes were a form of stealing from hardworking Americans to give to those who were too lazy to work. Isn't that interesting? Everybody talks about the America's fear of socialism or communism coming after the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And the reality is it happens in 1871. Because in 1870, African-American men get the right to vote at the same time that we have national taxation for the first time. And people who are opposed to African-American voting say, you know, actually, we don't mind that, that black people are voting. That's fine with us. It's not about race. What we mind is that poor people are voting, and they're going to vote for policies that, that, that are going to cost tax dollars. And, of course, those tax dollars are going to have to be paid for by the only people who have money, the white guys. And so what this amounts to is a redistribution of wealth from hardworking white men to lazy African-Americans. And because it's a redistribution of wealth, it's a form of socialism. And that word socialism sweeps across America starting in 1871, the same year that there's a, an event in Paris uh, where workers take over the city of Paris and mm. call themselves a commune. So Americans start to worry not only about socialism, but communism, and it's not the, the 20th century version that we all think about when we hear that word. It's this, this old construction of if you let poor people vote, they're going to vote for policies that are essentially giveaways to them from, through tax dollars from people who are hardworking. And that's the exact same formula that you hear nowadays and have heard really since about 1978. And the mythology about America that goes back to the very founding of the country, the idea that all men were created equal at a time when the people writing that held slaves, when women weren't even factored in, and, and originally it was only the white male landowners who could vote. And as you point out in the book, our founders, many of them believed that freedom required slavery. Can you explain that? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept because that's the central paradox in American history. And I'm not the first person at all to identify that. The person who really talked about it was a historian named Edwin Mor uh, Edmund Morgan in 1970 in a book called American Slavery, American Freedom. And he said, you know, what do you do with this idea that the same guys who came up with the idea of human freedom written into, into law also enslaved people? I mean, how do you manage that? And of course, he's only looking at the relationship between white men and African-American men. And what I hope to have done here is added women and, and other people of color, American Indians and Hispanics and Chinese and, you know, all the people that 19th century Americans were so concerned about, including Fiji Islanders, who figured very big in their mythology. That's why there's a Fiji Islander in Moby Dick. But, um, but the, the, the idea behind it is that you can't conceive in the 1700s 
of a world of human freedom if you include those people who are really in lesser categories. That's people of color or women, certainly, but also poor people. And so the way that the founders were able to conceive of a government based in freedom had to start from the perspective of we can all be free because they are not. And that that you know, that's a very negative thing. But but I really don't want to downplay that that concept of a government based in the idea of human freedom is profound, it's revolutionary, and we should be exceedingly proud of it. We just need to make sure we really expand it the way it could be expanded. We're talking with Heather Cox Richardson here on Downtown. Our political parties have transformed greatly over the last 100, 150 years, and uh, those who, who see the present day under a fairly limited lens don't always understand how those transformations took place. And, and you point to the Kansas-Nebraska Act as a time when the Democratic Party really became the party of slaveholders. You know, Rich, I love that you picked that up. That's my favorite act in American history. And most people sit there and it's just one more act. Yes, the, the Kansas-Nebraska Act is uh, the attempt in 1854 to make uh, it, it legal for slavery to move into the territories, which have been um, had been since 1820, um, half of the the, uh, the Louisiana Purchase is reserved for uh, free freedom, and half is uh, reserved for slavery. That's actually the compromise under which Maine came into the Union on May 15, 1820. Right, um, and uh, the 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 Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 is an attempt of the slave owners to override that and to say we should be able to come into the, into the territories altogether because our enslaved people are property and we should be able to bring our property anywhere we want. But the kicker to that law is that if you can do that, if they can go ahead and bring their enslaved people into all the territories, those new slave states will overall the free states and, Americans, and America will become entirely a slaveholding nation, and American democracy will have been completely rewritten. So what happens is the president, who's a Democrat, um, forces through this bill, and northern Democrats hate it, but they bow to it for party unity. And when that happens, the more moderate Democrats in the north get entirely voted out of office and get replaced by the Republican Party, the rising Republican Party candidate. And the only the most extreme Democrats stay in office in the North, and they start to work with slave owners in the South. So it's essentially a purge of moderate Democrats. And again, you can see parallels with that in the present. The purge really in the 1990s mm. under Newt Gingrich of the people that he called rhinos, Republicans in name only. Although in reality, they were really quite standard Republicans from, um, from the, the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s. He said, those guys aren't real. You have to be extremists like us or you're a rhino. And he really managed to make the Republican Party as extreme in the 1990s as, as the Democrats made the party extreme in the 1850s. In the latter part of the 19th century, one of the most powerful politicians in America was Maine's own James G. Blaine. He would serve as Secretary of State, was the Republican nominee in 1884, losing a, a close race to Grover Cleveland. And he was one of those people at the time who championed the Chinese Exclusion Act. Yeah, Blaine is such an interesting character. He really is. Blaine has always been about which way the wind is blowing. You know, there are some people who kind of get it. 
they can read the, the popular will and they can move along along that line. And so James T. Blaine is the, the what happens is that when the South goes uh, 100% Democratic after 1876, the, um, the, the Republican Party knows it's got to do something. And it, um, it doesn't, of course, know that the solid South is going to stay solid, but it knows that it's got to do something to pick up more electoral votes. So they move to the West and they try and court the West. And Blaine is the person who figures out that that's what they have to do. So even though the Republican Party itself hates the Chinese Exclusion Act, they really believe in the idea of individuals being able to come to America and work their way up. Blaine says, we got to get California. And in order to get California, where there's a strong Democratic movement to throw uh, the Chinese out, um, we've got to go ahead and back this idea of Chinese exclusion. So he is actually the one who starts to bring that, um, that exclusionary hierarchical version of, of American democracy that has that has lived in the West after the Civil War back into the mainstream and to move it move it back into the mainstream uh, of the American East. The myth of the cowboy also arose about this same time, and the irony, as you point out in the book, is the high percentage of cowboys who were people of color. That's right, about a third, and they get written out of the equation because the the cowboy in America is such a fascinating symbol because people, you know, you talk about Reconstruction, people kind of glaze over and they don't really, can't really grab hold of any real individuals in Reconstruction. The cowboy actually overlapped Reconstruction almost exactly, rose in about 1866 and and really operates until about 1886 when a terrible winter kills a lot of the cattle herds. And he rises and becomes as important as he does in in American mythology, even though there aren't that many of them. And they don't last very long because uh, the cowboy stands as a counterpoint to what Democrats argue is happening in the East, largely Southern Democrats is happening in the East. And that is what you started with, the idea that the new uh, laws in the American East to protect former enslaved people, freed people, are uh, creating policies that have to be paid for with tax dollars. And therefore, what the government is doing back east after 1871 or so, as I say, uh, to Southern Democrats looks like a form of socialism, that they're killing individual initiative. They're making uh, they're creating lazy people by giving them government handouts through programs that are going to level the playing field between black people and white people. And therefore, somehow the east is developing a form of socialism or this kind of communism they talk about. And standing against that is this image of the cowboy who wants nothing from the government and who is working his way up. And the reality, of course, is that cowboys couldn't survive without the government. The, West, the, the government pours more money and effort into the West than into any other region. But, but in American mythology, the cowboy becomes this hardworking white man working his way up, uh, really in contrast to that that image of the socialism that they believe is happening back east. It's a great story. One of the first politicians to take advantage of that ideal was Teddy Roosevelt, uh, joining the Rough Riders, becoming the hero of San Juan Hill, and, and known as a progressive. But as you point out in the book, he also helped to create an ideological underclass. Can you explain that? You know, so it's funny you say that. Um, my uh, the, the last book, one of the things about the, the great things about what I do is that you get to learn and change. I was a big champion of Teddy Roosevelt when I wrote my last book, uh, the book of the history of the Republican Party. But when I, as I said, I got to wonder why did 
the the same era in the 1890s that looked so much like the 1850s and the present, why did those robber barons not take over society and ultimately create an oligarchy? Because they had all the pieces. They had the language. They had the culture that circled around them. They had the money. They had the control of government. What happened? How does the progressive era come out of that? And what I have argued in this book is that that American paradox that you started with has a corollary. And that corollary is that men of wealth, um, and, and now we should say people of wealth, but in the 19th century, men of wealth could use that, that paradox and say, if people of color and women, and of course they're not using those terms at the time, but if they manage to become equal to white men, they will destroy the equality that white men have. So if American equality depends on inequality for women and people of color, if women and people of color start to approach equality, that by definition should destroy equality for white men. So what I argued with Teddy Roosevelt, and I think this actually um, explains a lot of that late 19th century period, is that he was able to advance the idea of uh, cleaning up American society, filing the hard edges off of American industry and and raising the the hardworking immigrants and and the, nurturing the middle class because he was willing to make sure that women and people of color didn't really obtain equality to white men. So by creating an ideological underclass, he was able then to say, "See, we're not creating communism. We're not creating socialism." Those which which he was vehemently against. He attacked Democrats for being socialists. Um, we don't have to worry about those people because they're no longer going to be able to affect our voting patterns. They're no longer going to be able to seize tax dollars. So by writing them out of the equation, much the same way as the founders did, he was able then to say, so let's use the government to help the rest of us become more equal. Um, it's, a, it's a sleight of hand that works rhetorically, <laughs> and it also helps to work if you look at what Teddy Roosevelt actually did in terms of cleaning up American society and launching the progressive era. We're talking with Heather Cox Richardson. Her book is How the South Won the Civil War. I could talk to you about this book for hours, but let's skip ahead a little bit. Uh, And I wanted to ask you how the Allied victory in World War II changed the way Americans viewed themselves. So that's such a beautiful moment. If you think about the 1920s and the 1930s, where America was really stratifying, a very few people had a lot of power. And while people liked to pretend they were part of that new economy with its radios and its silk stockings and, and all the, the consumer goods that, uh, that were available to many people for the first time, the reality was that that great boom in the 1920s was only accessible to a very few people. And, of course, when the bottom falls out of the stock market in 1929, everyone realizes it was only a few people. But America has had this... Uh, this quite divided society in the teens, especially after uh, World War I and in the 1920s. Well, what happens during World War II is that it has to be all hands on deck. You know, all the old animosities in society have to break down. And that's not to say they do entirely. There are race riots and there's, you know, the Zoot Suit riots in L.A. and there's race riots in Detroit. But but everybody gets behind the idea of reasserting American democracy over fascism. And that's a piece that you really have to remember, because they're not just fighting a war 
on the ground and fighting to protect Americans, they're actually fighting an ideological war. And FDR is really clear about this. He keeps saying, you know, fascists say their system is great. Look, they can't even feed themselves. When we go into Italy, we're the ones who feed them because we're a democracy and democracies grind slowly and they're messy. But in the end of the day, this is the system of government that most serves, that best serves the most people. So all Americans start to pull together to fight for democracy against fascism. And after the war, what that does is it creates this idea that we're all in this together. And you have things like that famous image of Superman saying to the American school children, you know, if anybody tells you that, you know, that we should be divided by race or by color, you tell them that kind of talk is un-American. We're all in this together. So there is this this instant almost breaking of that old hierarchical society during World War II. And you see it in the, in the form of the American GI, uh, the general infantry, who doesn't ever be, he's never identified. The whole point is he's just a regular guy, as opposed to some great general who is running everything. Um, Eisenhower, who ran, uh, ran the Allied, Allied forces, was, was adamant that you had to to raise up the little guy and make the regular, ordinary Americans feel like they were behind this war, because that would emphasize democracy as opposed to fascism's idea of a few great men fighting the war. So you get this real turn on a dime during World War II, and that, of course, is going to affect the rest of the, the history that I lived through and that some of your older listeners probably did as well. In the post-war period, no doubt influenced by two decades of having a Democrat in the White House, the Taft Republicans began to use the fear of communism first to try and reverse the New Deal to put uh, pro-business politicians back in power. And they found a messenger, a flawed messenger, in Senator Joe McCarthy during the communist witch hunts. And, and while he failed, you point out that he showed them the game plan and how to use the media to their advantage. Yes, and isn't it, I'll walk you through that, but isn't it interesting how much McCarthy's um, uh, techniques of simply saying stuff, lying, throwing stuff out there, um, because he knew it would get media attention, uh, and, and there wouldn't be time to fact-check him until later when no one was paying any attention, how much that now looks like um, like Donald Trump. And, of course, they share um, Roy Cohn, right. his advisor. Um, same guy. And, and Donald Trump once said the only person he looked up to and who had been a mentor to him was Roy Cohn. Uh, Joe McCarthy's right-hand man. man. But yes, and, and the point of that, what happens in that magical moment I just talked about, this idea of the resurgence of American democracy, is that for the first time in the 20th century, the American government commits itself to using the government uh, in order to regulate business and provide a basic social safety net and promote infrastructure. And that, the idea of the liberal consensus, is wildly popular, not only among Democrats, but also among Republicans. And there's a rump group of Republicans that are still very much in, enamored of the way Hoover had done business. And they want to get rid of that New Deal government, that Eisenhower government, and go back to the 1920s when business ran everything. And they had a problem because the liberal consensus and the idea of using the government to regulate business and to provide a social safety net and to do things like build the interstate highways was so enormously popular that they couldn't get anybody to, to vote for their policy. So finally, 
1951, William F. Buckley Jr. writes a book, and he says, we got to stop trying to make factual arguments because uh, when we do that, people keep voting against us. So the way to get them to – we have to start from the premise that this government is wrong, that this is socialism, it's communism. And the way to do that um, is to create a narrative, to create a story. And then, of course, uh, he is a staunch supporter of Joe McCarthy – the senator who ran the witch hunts in the 1950s, accusing people in Hollywood, for example, of being communists and ruining all kinds of lives. We still have the word McCarthyism from that. Um, he's a big f- a fan of McCarthy, who sort of shows him how to do that by sort of being out there and being flamboyant and telling the story of this, you know, individual a conservative, as uh, Buckley called him, with a capital C to distinguish them from um, from traditional conservatives who quite liked uh, the, the liberal consensus. Um, and and this individual guy standing against this, this, this group of capital L liberals, which was everybody else in the country, <laughs> who uh, liked the idea of government regulation and a social safety net. And that this small guy was going to stand up and he was the one who was protecting America. And that technique and that narrative style really, if you think about it, is the narrative of the late 20th century. Think of Star Wars. Think of, uh, you know, Red Dawn. Think of all the Mm. great popular culture of that era, which is the individual standing against a large entity. And as Reagan said, of course, in 1981, you know, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. And that, again, is just a kind of a straight line right from Hoover on to the present. And those themes play out in the 1960s, the idea of the Eastern establishment and the rugged individuals, the cowboy, starting with Barry Goldwater's failed bid for the presidency in 64. Roger Ailes enters the picture, helping Nixon with what became known as the Southern strategy four years later. And then uh, the rise of of Goldwater 2.0, a smoother, more likable Barry Goldwater in Reagan. Right. And the key to all of that rise, again, the, the, the idea of government regulating business and providing a basic social safety net and promoting infrastructure was and remains extraordinarily popular in America. But what the movement conservatives did is they managed to tie to their narrative that old idea from the, the 1870s that an activist government was going to use um, tax dollars to promote um, African-Americans who are unwilling to work for their own success. And they were able to do that after the 1954 Brown versus Board of Education decision, because at that point, um, the government was willing to step in uh, eventually with troops to go ahead and um, level the playing field between black Americans and white Americans. And of course, troops cost tax dollars. So you have that same theme coming back again and again and again. And it's no accident that the Brown v. Board is 1954, and um, William F. Buckley Jr. starts National Review in 1955, vowing, as he says, to tell the violated businessman side of the story about why uh, an activist government that regulates business is a negative thing. And the first thing he does, not the first thing, but the, one of the early things he does is to bring on board um, James Kilpatrick, who is going to write uh, columns about how desegregation and programs that are that might help people of color are um, unconstitutional. They are a redistribution of wealth, uh, taking of a man one man's property to give it to somebody else. 
So, Heather, we, we've taken way too much of your time, but before we let you go, let's get to Donald Trump. Is he now, if we view it through the lens of history, is he less an anomaly and more the logical conclusion of, of where this all has been coming for several years now? Well, I'm going to be annoying and say he's both. I think <laughs> that the, the trick to understanding Donald Trump as a, as a man is that he is not a politician. He's a salesman, and he's an extremely good one. I mean, you might not like Donald Trump, but, man, when he gets up, and gives an off-the-cuff speech. He doesn't read a speech well, but when he gives an off-the-cuff speech, he reads his audience like almost nobody I've ever seen. He's really terrific at what he does. Um, but he's a salesman. He's not a politician. And he happened into the position he is, and, um, and he has, in that position, carried this, uh, this anti-New Deal policy to its logical conclusion. If you look, he is quite deliberately destroying the federal government. He's doing it right now by saying to states, you know, don't um, don't look to the federal government for mm. help. Do it yourself. And you actually have people like Gavin Newsom in California coming out and saying, OK, California's going to be a nation state from now on. Um, he is he is taking that to its logical conclusion. And interestingly enough, if you looked at the 2016 Republican national platform uh, party platform for the 2016 election, I remember. When it, when it came out, I was actually walking this very road as that I am now, um, doing a, an interview with the BBC, just the same way I, I am right now. And I just kept saying, they kept wanting to talk about Donald Trump. And I kept saying, this is the party platform that, that Barry Goldwater would have written. Mm. This, is, this is the old-fashioned, this is straight out of Hoover. They are going to destroy the federal government. This is what they're up to. And, of course, Donald Trump was running on, I'm going to have um, universal health care. We're going to make taxes fairer. He was actually speaking as the most moderate Republican in the race uh, when he was campaigning. And, um, and that's the salesman in him. But he was running on this platform that was uh, really the, the 1920s come back to life. And it's actually, in the end of the day, exactly what we've got. It is an incredibly compelling book, How the South Won the Civil War. Heather Cox Richardson, it's uh, such a delight to talk with you. Thanks so much for being with us this afternoon. And uh, be well, stay safe, and hope we can talk again soon. You too. Thanks, Rich. Heather Cox Richardson talking with us about her terrific new book, How the South Won the Civil War. Our thanks to Heather. Thanks to the wonderful Perry Gilpin as well, and to you for joining us. If you like the podcast, please uh, give us a nice review. Tell your friends, subscribe, spread the word. Whatever you can do will help. We sure appreciate it. I mean, be careful. Do it with proper physical distancing. Spread the word nonetheless. And we'll see you next time on Downtown the Podcast, brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.